Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the show, we are joined by new friend Joe Goff to talk about why we should use the word mind in as many contexts as possible and not think of the consequences on people's health or its greater role in society at all. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, we actually discuss the importance of, once again, why what we say and how we say it matters, especially for myself. This journey, this podcast journey, continually teaches me this lesson over and over again. Having a platform and having you as a listener constantly makes me aware of my space and our greater world and the impact, either positively or negatively, I can have with my words. And for you or for family, friends, coworkers, even if you're not coming on one of the best comedy podcasts you've ever heard every other Tuesday to talk about the strange and the interesting, how we communicate with one another in the context of our words have obviously vital importance. And so does understanding for the perfect segue, how to make the perfect s'more. See, listeners, you have to tiptoe the line of a nice golden brown marshmallow and a slightly burnt marshmallow to truly experience that perfect first bite. You want the marshmallow to slightly start melting the chocolate. Also, does a graham cracker type cracker exist that's just a bit softer? Because, I mean, cancel me if you want, but slightly damp or moist, graham crackers truly are the piece de resistance of the perfect s'more. And so one would ask, Adam, why the hell are you talking about s'mores? Well, because apparently cuttlefish love them. Well, more specifically, marshmallows, and more specifically, even more, a live grass shrimp. Joe and I have a wonderful conversation about the marshmallow test and how it is being used to help define animal intelligence, and if animals do indeed have complex brain functions, or at least more complex than we once thought, but also how tests, like the marshmallow test, are being re-examined in modern-day psychology because just because something sounds sexy doesn't mean it's legitimate. Except me. <laughs> I might cut that out, but I might leave it in. And in our final news story, Joe and I discuss the impact solitary confinement can have on the human brain and how social deprivation and brain plasticity could change how we view what the UN considers, if someone is in solitary for more than 15 days, an egregious act of torture. Spoilers. I agree with the UN on that one. Before we jump into our conversation and to help our audience grow and these conversations to reach a broader audience, please subscribe to Water Cooler Talk Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Water Cooler Talk Pod where you can interact with the episode's topics, share your thoughts, even comment on the old s'more debate I just started there, or just leave us a short positive review on Apple to help further support the show. I would very much appreciate it, so thank you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 71, titled Replication Crisis, with Joe Goff. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. I just really, I really like the philosophy because within reason, as long as you relate it to something of general interest, you can kind of talk about whatever you want, as long as you do it the right kind of way. As long as you make it sound philosophical. Yeah, as long as you relate it to, you know, stuff other philosophers are interested in. I mean, sometimes that, even that kind of boundary policing goes quite badly. People have massive problems getting like the philosophy of race off the ground, for example, because very few non-white philosophers at the time, uh, well, lots of people just not being interested because it wasn't relevant to them. But anyway, that's a, that's a big tangent. But yeah, I'm just doing, uh, I'm doing a PhD. I'm going into my third year. 
my framework is a lot of philosophy of science and philosophy of language. But basically, what I'm working on is why I don't particularly like the word mind. Mm-hmm. It's ambiguous, but the problem isn't really that it's ambiguous because loads of terms are ambiguous, right? Uh, it's, it's that it's ambiguous in a way which proves itself really unhelpful. Well, yeah, especially like, and we can obviously get more into this a little later, but especially when it comes to like understanding and treating mental health and how everyone's minds are completely different, kind of these unique fingerprints, trying to have these colloquial terms that fit for everyone doesn't necessarily work in that space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for me, the the issue is a very slightly different one. I think that psychiatry does, like, like a lot of medicine, have to deal with, you know, the uniqueness and the peculiarities of individual people and try and find a way to deal with that. But for me, the issue is that the term mind is just not a particularly good description of what psychiatry deals with. So the example I really like, which uh, I owe to a book by a guy called Dominic Murphy, who's a really good philosopher of psychiatry. Yeah, he uh, he has this example of blindness, right? So blindness is like a disorder of vision. Vision is like about as mental as they come, as capacities go. It's clearly a part of people's minds. And yet blindness is not generally considered a mental disorder. So clearly there's some mismatch between a sort of ordinary categorization of what's mental and what's part of the mind and like what's going on with psychiatry. And I think it boils down to the fact that psychiatry is better understood as like a, a set of skills that can help certain patients in certain ways, or certain people in certain ways, not that patients aren't people. Anyway, the kind of key thing is the practical question of like, who can they help and, and how, not whether it's got to do with the mind. And it's made even worse by the fact that mind has a bunch of really inappropriate kind of connotations of like immateriality or non-physicality and stuff, which like, there's just no reason to believe that that's the case in most what I would prefer to call psychiatric disorders. Well, you know, why, why do you think like people so much focus on using this word mind rather than, you know, like cognitive science or s- s- stuff of like what you had talked about? Because it was just easy? I mean... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm resistant to speculating about people's motivations, you know, because if you, if you start doing that, then... That's true. Lots mm-hmm. of people have different reasons for using it and they feel like they've been strawmanned or like they've been... Uh, hard done by but one one kind of key thing is just its prevalence right like it's a it's a really common it's a really old term there's a guy uh Karl popper who's a big deal philosopher of science who argued that there were sort of three like metaphysically maybe maybe it definitely ex- sort of explanatorily like three worlds there was like the physical world the mental world and the social world and these all had their own sort of explanatory principles and divided up like views like that like these sort of grand views for like splitting up reality are, are quite quite common but I, loads of people who use the notion now don't don't hold those kinds of views they're just i don't know it has it has certain advantages like it's widespread so it's you know it's kind of quick and easy description to draw on for what you're doing mm-hmm. but i just i i i just think that's that sort of useful shorthand is is actually misleading that it, it does more to confuse than it does to to help yeah i i definitely agree and that's why i wanted to talk to you because reading your article is like oh yeah this is a lot of what i've been talking about in different realms you know through the past year and just how we describe things and how we talk about things and the words we use and the meanings of those words and how important it is, especially when we're trying to kind of change a way of doing something that we're using the correct terminology because that does matter, especially when you get into like making grand changes and political changes. Like if you're writing a law or a bill or something of that nature, like how you describe what that law is about and who it affects and impacts is vitally important. I, I, I completely agree. I think laws are a really nice example of where the kind of 
the the aptness of our descriptions gets put into practice in like a potentially really damaging way mm -hmm. it's not something i've done anywhere near as much research on at the moment as i would like but something that i'm really interested in doing sort of like next as part of my broader project is looking at like notions like mental capacity and mental competence and how they get they get used in the law it's too early for me to have like a a hot take <laughs> but uh, that's very do you have do you have hot takes on marshmallows oh do i ever i mean firstly can we can we just talk about how cute the study is i love i don't know if you've seen that documentary and i know it's kind of controversial but there's this documentary on netflix uh like my octopus teacher or something but it's an interesting kind of uh look at like the relationship of octopus but it's, it's cute but also there's you know there's some controversy there but i do love the aspect of just this marshmallow test, doing this marshmallow test with cephalopods, uh, specifically cuttlefish. But yeah, it is, is kind of a cute little test. Have you have you come across uh, Peter Godfrey Smith has an amazing book called, uh, it's also it's on octopus, octopus minds. The book mentioned is titled Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins. Yeah, I, I, that documentary, I think, completely passed me by. <laughs> what was what was the controversy? Uh, just that this guy was using his midlife crisis to go into nature and expel what he needed to work on through an animal. Now we're really understanding the sentience of animals, animals having emotions, animals feeling pain, and really understanding that, at least in my belief, I think nature is nature and we should let nature do nature and not try to interact with it and uh, interact with it to a point because we have to, I mean, right? We're living within it, but not going out of our way to interact with it and change the course of nature just because we're dealing with something that we should be dealing with within society. So that was kind of the controversy of it. But, you know, these days, everything has controversy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long the filming of that documentary took, but most most octopus only live like one or two years. Yeah, So I imagine long. a significant chunk of that octopus's lifespan was taken up with some guy's midlife crisis. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, let's get into this first story and talk about cephalopods and specifically cuttlefish. So this is from Science Alert Nature, written by Michelle Starr, March 3rd, 2021. A cephalopod has passed a cognitive test designed for human children. A test of cephalopod smarts has reinforced how important it is for humans to not underestimate animal intelligence. Cuttlefish cephalopods, which also include octopus, that have a unique internal shell, the cuttlebone, that is used to control buoyancy, have been put to a new version of the marshmallow test. A test in which a child is placed into a room with a marshmallow, hence talking about marshmallows, and if they don't eat the marshmallow for 15 minutes, they'll receive a second marshmallow and be able to eat both. And the results appear to demonstrate that there's more going on in these strange little brains of cuttlefish than we knew. The ability to delay gratification demonstrates cognitive abilities such as future planning, and it was originally conducted to study how human cognition develops, specifically at what age a human is smart enough to delay gratification if it means a better outcome later. Because it's so simple, it can be adjusted for animals. Obviously, you can't tell an animal that they'll get a better reward if they wait, but you can train them to understand that better food is coming if they don't eat the food in front of them straight away. Some primates can delay gratification along with dogs, albeit inconsistently. Corvids like crows too have passed the marshmallow test. Last year, cuttlefish also passed an animal version of the marshmallow test. Scientists showed that the common cuttlefish could refrain from eating a meal of crab meat in the morning once they learned that the later dinner would be something they enjoyed much better, shrimp. 
As a team of researchers led by behavioral ecologist Alexander Schnell of the University of Cambridge pointed out in a new paper, Cuttlefish Exert Self-Control in a Delay of Gratification Task. However, in this case, it's difficult to determine whether this change in foraging behavior in response to prey availability was also being governed by an ability to exert self-control. So, of course, they designed another test, because that's, that's science, right? The cuttlefish were placed in a special tank with two enclosed chambers that had transparent doors so the animals could see inside. In the chambers were snacks, a less preferred piece of raw king prawn in one, and a much more enticing live grass shrimp in the other. The doors also had symbols on them that the cuttlefish had been trained to recognize. A circle meant the door would open straight away. A triangle meant the door would open after a time interval between 10 and 130 seconds. And a square, used only in the control condition, meant that the door stayed closed indefinitely. In the test condition, the prawn was placed behind the open door, while the live shrimp was only accessible after a delay. If the cuttlefish went for the prawn, the shrimp was immediately removed. Meanwhile, in the control group, the shrimp remained inaccessible behind the square symbol door that wouldn't open. The researchers found that all the cuttlefish in the test conditions decided to wait for their preferred food, the live shrimp, but didn't bother to do so in the control group where they couldn't access it. Alexander Schnell stated, Cuttlefish in the present study were all able to wait for the better reward and tolerated delays for up to 50 to 130 seconds, which is comparable to what we see in large-brained vertebrates such as chimpanzees, crows, and parrots. That seems like cuttlefish can exert self-control, all right, but what's not clear is why. In species such as parrots, primates, and corvids, Delayed gratification has been linked to factors such as tool use, because it requires planning ahead, food hoarding, and social competence, because pro-social behavior, such as making sure everyone has food, benefits social species. Cuttlefish, as far as we know, don't use tools, hoard food, nor are they especially social. The researchers think that this ability to delay gratification may instead have something to do with the way cuttlefish forage for their food. Schnell continues, Cuttlefish spend most of their time camouflaging, sitting and waiting, punctured by brief periods of foraging. They break camouflage when they forage, so they are exposed to every predator in the ocean that wants to eat them. We speculate that delayed gratification may have evolved as a byproduct of this, so the cuttlefish can optimize foraging by waiting to choose better quality food. It's a fascinating example of how very different lifestyles and very different species can result in similar behaviors and cognitive abilities. Future research should, the team noted, try to determine if indeed cuttlefish are capable of planning for the future. So Joe, I don't know within, you know, your studies and doing your PhD, if have you have you done any work with animals and doing tests or experiments, psychological experiments on animals? Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, I uh I've never been anywhere near a lab in my my fun my sort of research capacities. I'm very much someone who reads rather than doing my own research. The, the one of the many joys that you can get away with in philosophy. Well, like just as far as then kind of taking this to human behavior, like is there a way like a researcher, at least, you know, in your knowledge would distinguish between predicted behavioral patterns, you know, a dog understanding that after 10 seconds it would receive a treat and a general understanding that waiting equates to a bigger reward. Because as a human, I understand the context of waiting, mm. but would a lesser intelligent creature also understand that same context? Or I mean, yeah, I think it's it's a really it's a really difficult question. I think one of the really reasons it's a really difficult question is it's really hard to sort of tease apart exactly what the terms sort of involve. Mm -hmm. Like when it comes to planning for the future, for example it's not precisely clear what planning for the future sort of means. Because like, there's, there's one model of it, right, where you're like, 
you're sitting around thinking like, hmm, if this happens and this will happen, if I do this, then maybe I can get this. And you're like weighing up pros and cons and it's all like very deliberative and so on and so forth. You know, it's all maybe like thinking in language. And it seems pretty unlikely that most animals do that. Like it seems pretty unlikely that they're sitting mulling, like taking thinker pose really like. (laughs) But then when it comes to sort of acting according to models that take into account the future, uh, there's some recent arguments, at least, and some evidence suggests that like, even E. coli do that. Really, really simple organisms. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, so if they, they, they adjust what's going on internally, depending on what's around them, like in a way that accounts for predicted like resource limits and stuff on the basis of what's currently in that environment. And so they, it's kind of like this idea that changing to your environment and really is like an aspect of survival. It's not something they're constantly like thinking about as like humans are able to do. I need to eat food because, you know, I'm hungry. That's like what's going through their brain because that's basic survival. Whereas humans are like, I want to eat this type of food because it makes me feel a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. So like one, one, one thing that I think that kind of gets at, right. Uh, And one, one thing that becomes an incredibly difficult question, when does sort of like, acting in accordance with sort of implicit rules and doing it all sort of automatically become like thinking about it because it's not (laughs) like it's not like Mm -hmm. at some point some like magic extra ingredient gets added or maybe maybe it does i mean but yeah it's like you know what at what point maybe maybe that's you know this like aspect of you know like i said this animal behavior background and a lot of how i look at situations like this is animals are looking at this very simple, I need to eat, I need to find shelter, and I need to procreate. And for humans, we're kind of taking those same three philosophies and expanding upon it because we have, I mean, animals do have social groups, but we have social intelligence, we have just human intelligence in general, we have the ability to speak, we have these complex languages. So we're able to take those three basic needs and expand upon them because I can say, like I said, you know, I know I need to eat, but today I want to eat a salad with chicken on it because I enjoy that. And yeah, it is what is that kind of special sauce that distinguishes this ability to just survive and the ability to have context on what surviving means. Well, I mean, one thing that maybe, you know, complicates that picture a bit is it at least at least there's some sort of anecdotal stuff and like some people take the idea quite seriously. I know it's not like, you know, I know it's a bit controversial, but yeah, reports of animal suicide. Mm -hmm. And it's like, again, you know, it doesn't fit with like a very deliberative kind of model because they're presumably not like to be or not to be kind of thing. (laughs) Again, when it comes to things like play, where it it doesn't fit neatly into a model of, Mm -hmm. oh, they act according to survive. I mean, I think the thing is you can, you can sort of heuristically understand a lot of animal behavior by applying this lens of like, what do they need to do in order to survive? What do they need like in order to reproduce and so on? Because sort of necessarily they're going to do something pretty close to that or they wouldn't have survived as a species. That doesn't mean that that's what they're thinking about as they go through the world. They might have a a sort of cognitive model that relies on quite different heuristics and is sort of obviously manifest in their their sort of overall behavior. So I think an interesting example of this is like uh, the pleasurability of like uh, an orgasm. Mm -hmm. It's a clear case where like, right, that's a a really basic like reproductive drive that we have. But we're not thinking when that happens, oh, I really need to get me some progeny. (laughs) 
most of the time <laughs> we're thinking like well that'll feel nice mm-hmm. and similarly in like social relationships right there might be like a sort of a broad scope evolutionary theory of why they're valuable but we're not thinking in those terms and it seems to me often sometimes a bit unfair to assume that animals are then thinking in the really basic terms it seems to somehow sort of inflate their like rational intelligence while like downplaying yeah it comes to like something like dolphins you know when it comes to procreation dolphins use fish to masturbate because they understand an orgasm feels good and so yes i do i do agree with what you're saying you know it's more complex and you know you have creatures like a cephalopod or in the cuttlefish understanding that if i wait a little bit i can get a better piece of food it's not necessarily this basic idea of understanding of survival that i need to eat so if i wait i have you know a better chance of getting food with better sustenance and it makes me you know feel better it gives me better nutrients it's just i enjoy that food better and we don't have to equate that to them just having to survive and eat yeah like the, the cuttlefish might be in the cage like screw that um i don't <laughs> know what the less valuable food was but the, yeah, the lie or the the dead the dead shrimp which also from, you know, I was kind of looking this at a very analytical animal behavior essence on animals don't like to eat dead meat. They don't like to eat any dead other animal because there is an inherent risk on that could be a diseased animal. As you know, we have uh, uh, possums. I don't know if you have possums in the UK, nah. but they're the animal that plays dead. They pretend to play dead because an animal like a fox or a wolf does not want to eat a dead animal because there is a possibility of having, you know, some kind of disease or rotten meat or, you know, you don't want to leave a piece of raw chicken out on your counter for a week and eat it because you're like, I'm probably going to get sick. You want to eat that fresh chicken. So that's kind of how I looked at this originally. It was like, of course, the cephalopod wants to eat the live meat because it's a safer risk of trying to eat food. But when you do look at it from the aspect of these animals are intelligence. Animals do have sentience. They are these, you know, inherently smart creatures. They may be smart just from a different aspect to what humans mm. think being smart is and being intelligence is. But that doesn't mean they're stupid. They're just smart in different ways. And I mean, even if they are, you know, just straightforwardly more stupid, say, it then seems really weird to think that this cuttlefish is there going like, oh, well, if I eat that shrimp, then there's a risk of food poisoning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there might be some sort of like the, the disgust response in humans, right? Like we don't we don't think that through as it happens. They might have some some quite basic response along those lines. I mean, I, I'm speculating entirely here, but like we can we can imagine from our own case, like what it would be to have like a taste or a preference that isn't reasoned through or thought through. For me, at least, like rarely when I pick a food that I think is tasty, rarely am I like thinking like, oh, I think I will enjoy the flavor of this food more than I will enjoy the flavor of this food. I'm like, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> and it's like, it's quite like gut. It's quite heuristic. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not all reasoned through. So I think even if they are just more straightforwardly stupid, it, it doesn't mean that it can be reduced just really straightforwardly to like they're following sort of evolutionary laws. I think one of the reasons at least being able to look at the research I was able to do, you know, one of the reasons we tend to look at the cognitive abilities of animals to better understand our own brain. And even children, you know, this marshmallow test was, I think, four-year-olds were taking this test. The children ranged in age from three years and six months to five years and eight months. But like as social creatures, we're constantly comparing and contrasting how we act around one another and how we're compared and, and act to other species. But as adult humans, 
like I was saying earlier, when it comes to a test such as the marshmallow test, I understand that I can take that first marshmallow and eat it because I can leave that room and I have a job and I can buy as many fucking marshmallows as I want. <laughs> you know, I can have that immediate satisfaction because I know I can, you know, fulfill that satisfaction again as many times as I want later. I know with this test, there's, you know, some variables that have been tried to be retested and they can't, you know, this replication crisis. Uh, like another study found that the influence of wealth affected if the kids took the marshmallow or not, you know, a kid who might not know where their next meal is coming from is much more likely not to be able to wait. Uh, even among kids, a recent 2021 study from UC San Diego found that they will wait longer if they're told that an authority figure like a teacher is told how long they waited. So it seems like with animals, and once again, we both agree like animals aren't stupid, but can kind of simplify it because you can take out something like morality. Uh, you know, humans understand that killing someone may be bad, but maybe animals don't necessarily understand that or economic status. I know primates do tend to trade things for what we would consider cash, but then also the awareness of social value and have a cleaner test because for a science test to be successful, you should be able to control for all factors except that one variable. It's it's a it's a difficult one, especially in in animal psychology. So there's some some really interesting works been going on on this, which is this idea of like pseudo null hypotheses. Often in in animal psychology or in in, other, in a lot of areas of science, you know, you've got your, you've got your hypothesis that you're testing and you test that result against possibility that it, that's not the case and the the alternative is just that that's not the case but how you flesh out that that's not the case in animal psychology is really difficult is the cuttlefish planning for the heap for the future or is it not well it seems like if you're just comparing is it not then it seems like it obviously is but is it planning for the future or is it just implicitly following certain rules that it's like hardwired to follow and it's like well that comparison comes a lot harder and it isn't like standard science at that point in that it's no longer comparing it with just a straightforward null hypothesis or maybe it is i don't know well i i understand what you're saying it's kind of like tests like these and experiments like these show us that trying to use animals for these like quote unquote clean tests because we understand these basic things that animals need to do to survive may not be correct we may realize through these tests that all these tests we've done on animals i mean specifically something like a mouse, may not be as accurate as we once thought because we're now understanding that animals are a lot more intelligent and a lot more sentient than we once believed them to be. Yeah, I think as well, like, they're just absurdly complicated. Mm -hmm. Like, there's this, there's this general thing of, you know, underdetermination of theory by, by evidence. It's a big worry in, like, a lot of areas of science where we have, like, very, very scant evidence and a, like, massive, like, edifice of theory constructed on top of it and like how you explore that possibility space with like very limited ability to test such a like incredibly complicated mechanism and the only very sort of coarse grained inputs and outputs it's like it's really hard <laughs> yeah I, I actually i don't know like if you've read into this like replication crisis and you know, i want to get a little bit into it but like there's this analysis of the top 100 psychological journals from 1900 to 2012 indicated that approximately 1.6 percent of all psychological publications were replication attempts so most of you know, what's going out in these journals are just first time attempts and saying, this is what we found. So let's go on that. So like, how does that inability to replicate many well known psychological studies, you know, like this concept of replication crisis factor into how modern day studies, experiments and theories are created? Because 
For instance, as you know, I was mentioning, the marshmallow test was once used to predict the life outcomes of the children involved. You know, it was the idea of if you waited, you were more likely to receive a higher SAT score. Or even another well-known Stanford experiment, being the Stanford Prison Experiment, which has never been successfully replicated for ethical reasons, obviously. Or I don't know if you know of the biggest con man in academic science himself, Diedrich Staple, who fabricated and manipulated dozens of his publications. But I would make the presumption, especially within psychology, and this is kind of going into what you had talked about and what you had written in your Anon article. But since each of our minds are uniquely ultimately unique. You know, I believe researchers at Zurich talked about how like each of our minds is like a fingerprint. I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but much of like funding within your field is based on being able to have tests and experiments that have somewhat definite results. So being able to capitalize on those gray areas of psychology, and I'm not trying to say this is like being done on purpose, but that would allow researchers the opportunity to continue their work and continue to try and dial in the results to like a much more mathematical, quote unquote, mathematical result, because math is math, right? One plus one will always equal two. But trying to understand if a kid who waits 15 minutes for a second marshmallow will have a better life in 40 years isn't as concrete as one plus one equals two. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much so much that feeds into the the replication crisis right it's really hard to get null results published and what that means is that only the the tales get published so there was a there's a study a while ago like a big review in gender differences studies uh there were basically like equal amounts published showing in either direction that there was a difference and what it looked like was that the vast majority of studies were finding nothing and it was only the tales the sort of the random positive results that will happen by chance if you do enough studies on anything that we're ever getting published. So you create this this sort <laughs> yeah. of impression of like a real sort of disagreement with conflicting evidence. But what you've actually got is a like incredibly misleading appearance by the fact that null results don't get published and are basically a negative finding. Well, yeah, exactly. No one wants to read about a test that's like, we didn't find any conclusive results. And they're like, <laughs> why, why am I spending money on this? And then like, uh, as well, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's over my head, but there's a woman called Deborah Mayo who's doing like loads and loads on this like statistical recommendations that at least she claims could have prevented the replication crisis in the first place there's the amount of like neglect of like so if you took all the all the studies in psychology over what was that was the period again was it 1900 to 2012 1900 to 2012 so over 100 a little over 100 years i very i reckon very very few of those studies have been talked about much more than like 10 years after their publication there have been so many sort of like paradigm shifts in psychology, so many big like mm-hmm. changes of focus, changes of interest, changes of topics, changes of assumption. To some extent, like people just don't, and maybe rightly, maybe not, people just don't pay that much attention often. As well, like their expertise, most most working psychologists, their expertise needs to be their specific area of theory, their specific experimental paradigm, their specific area of like kind of result. They can't also be masters of the history of <laughs> the sprawling <laughs> history of psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess I understand, you know, like something like the Stanford prison experiment, we know about that because it was just such a fucked up experiment and movies have been made and articles have been published about it. But there are, like you were saying, you know, journals and publications that were just like, yeah, 10 years later, 
we're on to something new. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's ones that have that big social impact that are most likely to be people that are likely to test. So to some extent, the things that people fi- find fail to replicate are also the ones that would be most significant to find out. Just on why that particular experiment was so important, I think it's really interesting. Like one of the reasons it was so like culturally important at the time is that people were very concerned about how Nazi Germany could have happened. Mm-hmm. People were people loved a theory where like. If you put anyone in that context, it'll it'll happen. It was like it was a way of, I guess, fighting this idea that like the Nazis had just been exceptionally bad people and pushing towards a theory of it could have been anyone if that happened and politically and culturally to you. Yeah, no, I think a lot of what they talk about and a lot of like research I've been doing for another show I've been working on is how, you know, many of the Jewish population, they were just like, Oh, we're, we just thought we were being relocated from one ghetto to another. But there were like these Jewish individuals fighting back and trying to I mean, we don't need to get too much into <laughs> the Nazis and the Holocaust. But I definitely understand what you're saying. You know, it's these factors that play an important role into like this group paradigm. And, you know, we've talked about this minimal group paradigm with Jake Teeny and like, it just sometimes takes the smallest thing for people to be like, I want to do that thing with those people because I don't want to be on the outside of those groups. Yeah. Sometimes though, right? Like and working out when and when not. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. It's not it's not perfect, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no absolutes here, we're not the Sith. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show Joe Goff. Joe is currently competing a PhD at the University of Sussex in England on why he doesn't like the word mind, drawing primarily on a mix of philosophy of mind, philosophy of psychology, and philosophy of cognitive science. Joe, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you. So, Joe, let's let's get into it. Why don't you like the word mind and why is it important to be clear on the categorization of specific words and phrases within a field like psychology, you know, mind, mental, etc.? Okay. So, the reason I don't like the word mind is I think that it's ambiguous in a way that's unhelpful. So I really want to stress that my 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 issue with it is not that it's ambiguous. So loads of words are ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. You talk about cheese. Cheese is a fine word as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but like, if you talk about a piece of cheese and you talk about, if you say like the cheese on the table, you're talking about a specific like chunk of cheese. You talk about like your favorite cheese, you're talking about a type of cheese. And loads of words are ambiguous in this kind of way. And mind is, mind is definitely at least that ambiguous. And probably more. The issue is these kinds of ambiguity, like they they build bridges, they like enable certain conflations to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. They enable certain kind of confusions or equivocations, and that can be quite harmful. I'm not convinced that there's any any sort of way of working out when that's going to happen beyond like having a look at whether it's it's harmful or not. And then when I think when you look at like how how the word mind does get used, how how like it does seem to pretty consistently produce these kinds of equivocations and these ways in which it's quite harmful. Um, I talked earlier about mental illness and the idea like the the idea of mental illness. And I mean, a lot of people when they they think about the mental, like they think of like the immaterial. Uh, they might think of phrases like "all in the mind" that mean imaginary. They might think it means like non-physical. So they might think that it something can't be a mental like really be a mental illness if it's a brain disease, for example. It's just completely wrong when it's applied to uh, what I would prefer to call like psychiatric disorder or psychiatric illness. These are just like completely inappropriate like connotations to bring in when you're you're talking about this like category of disorders and this ca- this group of people who could, who can benefit from psychiatry's help in a certain way. That's one area where I think it's been harmful. I mean, there are others. I really dislike the construal of psychology and cognitive science as being the same thing. It's a bit less uh, sexy, as an example. <laughs> like, I think, I think the sort of inheritance that cognitive science has from from cybernetics makes it quite a different discipline with quite a different subject matter than psychology. 
But the construal of both of them has to do with the mind means that the two often get kind of conflated. And cognitive science is just presented as like the latest and greatest of psychology. And often by pe- what people mean by cognitive science is basically what I would call cognitive psychology, which is a specific kind of cognitive psychology. But it's definitely not all of cognitive science, which also has interests in like artificial life, although that's a bit of a misnomer. It's more like simulating life than trying to recreate life from the ground up. Like maybe like synthetic biology, robotics, AI, loads of stuff which is just not part of psychology and does not have the same subject matter as psychology. Well, yeah, even like something like the word science, like even as you were talking about like AI and something like that, like I would equate that to science and computer science. But then also, if you're using that within the terms of cognitive science and psychology, it can get very confusing very quickly. Even trying to like prepare for this episode, I'm reading like a 100 different definitions. And I'm like trying to understand how they all piece together. And, <laughs> you know, you have people ha- that, you know, this is something we've talked about with a lot of like papers and such that are released it's like it's very fucking confusing for just like the modern person that does not spend you know their college years or their studying years studying this type of things because these words are used so interchangeably and it's like okay i really have to do now a deep dive on all these definitions just to understand this one paper yeah i mean i mean that is that's definitely true and it's it's very unfortunate I think like a lot of the reason people people use these kind of these very broad terms often is it's a bit harsh to call it a marketing thing, but it's basically a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. But you yeah. relate it to like some bigger topic of like general interest. You like use a term that like makes it sound like you're maybe discussing like the the human condition or something. You bring all of that that in to like make your paper seem a bit like sexy and relevant. And it's it's rarely like the scientists like fault they know exactly what they mean they're not doing anything dishonest because there's a legitimate meaning of the term that they're using um and it helps with funding which it's not their fault that the funding is so terribly set up <laughs> like um well exactly even like just real quick this like last story you know i think the study is what's what was the study called cuttlefish exert self-control in a delay of gratification task is that as sexy as a cephalopod has passed a cognitive test designed for human children no, I mean, you're more likely to click on the the cephalopod has passed a cognitive test designed for human children. They're doing this marshmallow test. than you are this cuttlefish exert self-control in a delay of gratification task. Yeah, you're right. It's it's the marketing of it. There's an area which this this is like an example of people who in looking for like sort of precursors of like sort of neurotypical adult human like psychological capacities use a mix of like animal psychology and developmental psychology. Often in ways, I don't think this is a case of it, often in ways that I think are like really grossly irresponsible. I mean, I, th- I think the worst example is uh, that, I, uh, that I'm familiar with is some of the, the discussions of autism mm-hmm. that come out of a theory according to which autism is mind blindness or a deficit in the theory of mind, where that is a term from animal psychology. So the first paper in animal psychology on the topic was called Does the Chimpanzee Have a Theory of Mind? Although it concluded that it wasn't, it was exploring the idea that that might be like a uniquely human capacity. Like five years, well, seven years later, there was a paper on autism with exactly the same title, basically. It was, Does the Autistic Child Have a Theory of Mind? So Simon Barrett-Cohen, one of the big researchers in the area, he's done like loads for the field, I should add. But he's said stuff that is, I think, quite outrageous. So he's described autistic people as biologically set apart from the rest of humanity and lacking the basic machinery and as lacking a theory of mind and called it one of the quintessential abilities that makes us human in the same paper. 
and you get these like really nasty kind of cases where like I'm not saying that the researchers are doing it or doing it deliberately, but again, like funding bodies and like, the way it all works it really encourages like the kinds of conflations that lead to people thinking that like autistic people have no empathy and are like a bit less human than the rest of us. And they get used as this sort of example, a sort of morality tale for how bad life would be if we were more like animals. And I know, you know, specifically we talked about this with Avak Das in another episode, but like this idea of alpha and beta wolves and how that was conflated to now we have these like alpha and beta males. And it's like, no, you're completely misunderstanding what that study was. Even the guy later came back and said, I fucked this up. That's a really lovely example. And one of the reasons I really like it as an example is because it's, it's one of these cases where it's like, you've got this slight ambiguity in the term which lets people sort of wrench out of context and then for their own like personal bullshit they can claim this like completely spurious kind of scientific legitimacy they can be like oh but no 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 this is a concept from like animal psychology that we're not just dicks yeah (laughs) exactly and that's like something that at least here in the u.s you know with the far right and bringing back nazis i don't know i didn't think i was gonna be talking about nazis as much as i did today Joe. but (laughs) using this idea that white individuals are genetically more pure it's never been proven it's never been proven but they're able to find these studies and somewhere out there there's a study that says that that's true and i can take that science and use it to, and this is obviously a more extreme example, but I can take that science to prove my point. And when someone says, no, you're wrong, you can say, well, the science says I'm right. But if you know you have 100 scientists and 99 scientists are saying one thing and there's one scientist that's saying the other thing and you're using that data from that one scientist, you have to have those critical thinking skills to understand that if a vast majority if 99% of the data is showing one thing, you probably shouldn't believe that 1%. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think it touches on a lot of like big issues as well about like in general how like the public and sort of public reception of science, the writing of science interact in ways that are like deeply unideal. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a philosopher who recently won a Leverhulme Prize called uh, Liam Bright who has like done quite a bit of work on this kind of thing. In terms of what seems to best serve science, it's often for to like the conclusions of scientific papers not to be held to like the standards that we would want them to be held to if they were to serve the like public role that they often play they can't be understood at least in the, the, in the scientific context as like just reports of truth i mean sometimes they just they're terrible ideas that inspire better ones there's a lovely paper someone wrote a while ago i can't remember who on like a concept called the grandmother neuron the 2019 paper written by Anne sophie barwich was titled The Value of Failure in Science, The Story of Grandmother Cells in Neuroscience. And why it's like a truly terrible scientific idea that served to like, I I don't know that, I'm not saying that, just to be clear if anyone loves grandmother neuron. But like why it served to like inspire like loads of really, really good research. So like the putting out a bad idea was actually really, really helpful for the progress of like the science. Mm -hmm. But then from the public reception point of view, that just doesn't work when you're talking about like really ethically important topics, right? Because practical (laughs) topics, because suddenly you've got people just being like, oh, the science says it because one paper says it. But what the science says, if it says anything, can only be seen by zooming right out and taking the overview and the balance and looking at the sort of direction of travel. You know, when you're on the internet and you want, you know, the right answer, you know, like you're supposed to give the wrong answer to get the right answer. But when you're talking about like human life and ethics and politics and creating laws, like we talked about earlier, you can't necessarily do that. (laughs) 
yeah. can necessarily do the wrong thing first to eventually try to get the right thing 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. But it seems like throughout society, at least I'll speak just to the US, I mean, we've We've done that multiple times, you know, like the drug on or the war on drugs for one example, you know. But yeah, I do like kind of understand what you're saying. And, you know, I know you formulate this as an extreme idea on your website, but I don't think this is an extreme idea. I think this is, you know, a very common, especially in today's age, a very common idea that's, you know, you're specifically being specific in your field of study, but a lot of people are truly trying to understand how do I be clear on what I say without ostracizing the people that really aren't in my same field. I think that is one of those those areas where like terminology again becomes really important. It's like especially because increasing specialization even just within science and then like in, increasing sort of like fragmentation and more generally, if you have certain kinds of ambiguity in certain kinds of ways and you just you can get people just regularly talking completely across purposes and thinking that what they mean in one specialism say animal psychology is what they mean in another specialism say developmental psychology where often that's just not the case they're just using the same term to talk about a actually wildly different construct or capacity well it's, it's important work joe it's important <laughs> work but before we move on myself and water cooler talk are on a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today for each new episode of the podcast the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent on the day of their episode going live water cooler talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest as well as a global platform to spread a message of love hope and togetherness and we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Joe, your charity of choice for today's episode is Samaritans.org. Do you mind explaining a bit about the work they do within the mental health space and the importance of having someone to be there for you? And I do want to, I believe this is just a UK service. Yes, I am. Uh, I think that's right, but I'm not 100% sure. But I think it is. It's only UK. But yeah, it's uh, it, it serves as a kind of crisis hotline, but with, with specially trained people who are who trained in, in primarily in like listening, but they try and de-escalate as well, especially for trying to reduce the chances of people committing suicide. And I like, I don't know, I've known plenty of people who have used it or had to use it. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of part of the reason I've chosen it. But I also just think it's, uh, it's, it's an excellent, excellent service. I mean, we were talking about the importance of words and choice of words. And one of the things I wanted to say is that in a lot of the topics, at least that I work on, the, the problem is often just a complete lack of funding. Psychiatric services are just not funded. And mm -hmm. it's sad that they have to, but charities like this do an incredible role in filling the gaps left in the like pub where the public's health services should be filling. Well, I'm glad you're having, <laughs> I'm not glad, but I, I see you're having similar issues in the UK <laughs> as we have in the US. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, are you ready to jump into our final news article of the episode? Yes. Yes, I am. This is from Scientific American Neuroscience, written by Dana Smith, November 9th, 2018. Neuroscientists make a case against solitary confinement. Robert King spent 29 years living alone in a 6 by 9 foot, or for our UK listeners, 1.8 by 2.7 meters, prison cell. He was part of the Angola Three, a trio of men kept in solitary confinement for decades and named for the Louisiana State Penitentiary where they were held. Robert was released in 2001 after a judge overturned his 1973 conviction for killing a fellow inmate. Since his exoneration, he had dedicated his life to raising awareness about the psychological harms of solitary confinement. Robert King states, People want to know whether or not I have psychological problems, whether or not I'm crazy. How did you not go insane? I look at them and tell them, 
I did not tell you I was not insane. I don't mean I was psychotic or anything like that, but being placed in a six by nine foot by 12 foot cell for 23 hours a day, no matter how you appear on the outside, you are not sane. There are an estimated 80,000 people, mostly men, in solitary confinement in US prisons on any given day. This does not include jails, juvenile facilities, or immigration detention centers, and is data collected in 2012. They are confined to windowless cells roughly the size of a king bed for 23 hours a day, with virtually no human contact except for brief interactions with prison guards. According to participants at an annual Society for Neuroscience conference, this type of social isolation and sensory deprivation can have lasting traumatic effects on the brain, many of which may be irreversible. Neuroscientists, lawyers, and activists such as Robert have teamed up with the goal of abolishing solitary confinement as cruel and unusual punishment. Most prisoners sentenced to solitary confinement remain there for one to three months, although nearly a quarter spend over a year there. The minimum amount of time is usually 15 days. The most common reasons for being sent to solitary are for preventative measures, which can be indefinite, or for punishment, which is more likely to have a set end point. Several states have passed legislation limiting who can be in solitary confinement, including mentally ill and juvenile offenders, and for how long. The United Nations recommends banning solitary confinement for more than 15 days, saying any longer constitutes torture. I want to say that again. The United Nations recommends banning solitary confinement for more than 15 days. Any longer constitutes torture. Even in less extreme cases than that of the Angola 3, prolonged social isolation, feeling lonely, not just being alone, can exact severe physical, emotional, and cognitive consequences. Stephanie Casipo, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience at the University of Chicago, stated, We see solitary confinement as nothing less than a death penalty by social deprivation. For good or bad, the brain is shaped by its environment, and the social isolation and sensory deprivation Robert experienced likely changed this. Huda Akil, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Michigan, stated, Loneliness in itself is extremely damaging. Robert King has experienced lasting cognitive changes from his time in solitary confinement. His memory is impaired and he has lost his ability to navigate, both of which are signs of damages to the hippocampus. At one point, he was unable to recognize faces, but that problem has passed. The question remains as to whether these neural changes are permanent or can be reversed. Huda Kiel continues, I doubt you can live through an experience and come out with the same brain you went in with, and not in a good way. Robert said he survived the ordeal because he recognized that his case was politicized and bigger than himself. He and many supporters believe that Angola 3 were targeted and falsely convicted because they were members of the Black Panther Party. Their cases were later taken up by the UN as an example of the inhumanity of solitary confinement. By pairing their research with Robert King's experience, the neuroscientists at the conference hope to move the needle on people's perspectives and policies around the issue. Jules Lobel, a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh, thinks they can. He states, Neuroscience can not only be a powerful tool for understanding the human condition, but it can also play an important role in changing the conditions that humans live under. I think uh, an article like this really brings home that aspect of how much negative and positive stimuli can impact our brain. You know, being locked in a room like, you know, like they're saying, the size of a king bed for 23 hours a day that is obviously going to have an impact on your mental health and, you know, just your day-to-day -day life. And, you know, I know there's this one specific case, Caleb Broder, who was placed in and out of solitary confinement for over two years for being falsely accused of sending a backpack and valuables, regardless of the compensation of the wrongdoings done against him. I think his family received like three point three around $3 million from the state of New York. But he talked about how once he got out, like, 
what was that money going to do to really help him mentally and how he was robbed of this happiness? He ended up ultimately ending his life. But as we discover and better define mental health struggles, like what, at least in your opinion, what can we really learn from stories like Caleb Browder or Robert King that we couldn't learn before? Well, I mean, I think one thing that really jumped out to me from the, the article is King saying that he survived the ideal because he recognized that his case was politicized and bigger than himself. There was a guy, my favorite psychologist actually, called uh, Kurt Danziger. And I'm sorry to do this to you, but he was a refugee from Nazi Germany. <laughs> who uh, <laughs> Back to it. <laughs> eventually, uh, he settled in South Africa. He was like very, very keen to campaign anti-apartheid. The thing he thought he could do most help on was he uh, became an expert on solitary confinement and his expert testimony got a lot of people off because he argued that any testimony from on the basis of solitary confinement was inadmissible. Part of the basis for this is you get reports of people who they report having no idea who they are, they report losing all sense of their values, they report losing all sense of their place in the world, they report like you get you hear reports as well of them just them begging to be interrogated in order to speak to someone it's like truly yeah like the little aspect of i'll say whatever you want me to say just for this to stop yeah like social deprivation is just a, a truly awful thing to do to a person so the, the way danziger puts it is you, it seems like you need social feedback in order to maintain a stable sense of self what i th- what i think kind of comes out in that that comment from from king is he managed to like hold on to those those values to like get him through that ordeal like retain that orientation retain some of that sense of self by being aware of of sort of the context of the the case i would imagine like just purpose in general is such an important aspect to human survival like i have purpose so i want to go through the next day and i want to get to the next day and if you're in the solitary confinement and you feel like your life is being thrown away which in often cases if you're put in prison at least here in the u.s it's kind of a not a quote-unquote death sentence where you're being killed, but the fact that even if you get out of prison, you know, you can't vote. It's very much harder to get jobs, you know, I, specifically where you're from in the UK, you know, 47% of adults in the UK who are released from prison went on to reoffend. This is from the Prison Reform Trust. So it does feel like going to prison is almost this death sentence. And we have this, I, I mean, probably not the right way to describe it. And I know we just talked about how to be clear in language, but like, I feel like people almost had this justice boner to punish people that do something wrong. And instead of trying to rehabilitate them and trying to make them, you know, a functioning part of society, let's just punish them. Let's just throw them away in a hole and just forget them. I think in this case, the the justice boner is also a racist boner. I mean, and as well, like uh, I did a little bit of research, uh, like black men are wildly disproportionately represented in solitary confinement in the U.S., and then in women's prisons, it's most often like transgender women, people with mental illness, LGBTQ people. And then probably the worst one was uh, people who were victims of sexual assault by correctional officers. And all of these were ostensibly put in for protective reasons, which falls really neatly into the standard dichotomy of the way like men and women are viewed, where you know women are viewed as sort of passive, like you can kind of do what you want because you know their interests better than them. And men are viewed as, like, especially black men, as like aggressors who need to be confined in order to be kept away from everyone else. Yeah, all of these kinds of like horrific biases are definitely feeding into these practices of solitary confinement. Well, that's such an interesting thing that you brought up because, you know, I was trying to, in kind of preparing for this episode, I was trying to look for like the pros of solitary confinement because I'm very much against solid or I'm very much against solitary confinement. I think it's an absolutely horrible thing to do to another human being. But a lot of the pros that a lot of 
you know, these websites and studies had was the aspect of control. It's a better way to control someone when you break them down. And, you know, I just laughed out loud when I looked at one of the cons of solitary confinement is it violates basic human rights. And I was like, <laughs> you know, if you have if you have something and that's one of the cons, it's probably not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, like when you when you're listing your pro as like greater control and your con as violates human rights, it should it should really be a like a we the baddies <laughs> moment, right? Like it's, it's like, oh, it's it's really good at breaking people. Unfortunately, it's really good at breaking people <laughs> well and i mean within that aspect of like breaking people it's like you know kind of that question i posed to you uh in, in the email you know the hippocampus and we don't need to get like too into detail about the hippocampus but the area of our brain associated with learning and memory the brain can obviously be negatively impacted and damaged by a variety of stimuli but also can it repair itself with positive stimuli you know like through therapy could someone like robert king get back what he potentially lost as to what he potentially lost i mean i really i really have no idea but i mean definitely like brain plasticity is is not to be underestimated i mean you can get really severe lesions you can lose like or people have basically lost a hemisphere and the like recovered yeah there's like one individual who got like a rebarb through his brain or something oh, so that one that's that's a guy called phineas gage yes. and yeah the, the classic story is like after the bar went through his head he was no longer phineas gage he was this angry sweary man where before he'd been gentle and soft-spoken and recent uh stuff on this uh the really lovely paper called rehabilitating phineas gage found, finds that the historical record actually suggests that a few years later he was back to his old self which so yeah, the the sort of brain determinism is, seems to be a bit of a a bit of a myth to some extent. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. It's like for marketing reasons, it's a lot better to say this guy got a rebar bar through his head and he completely changed who he was, yeah. rather than to say people described it as like phrases like he literally lost a part of his mind were really common, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, with uh, with this, I mean, this isn't just a brain injury, right? Like this is a. Uh, like a truly horrific experience to go through which the brain is is reflecting yeah this is you know like uh, uh talked about earlier with like a dog understanding that i'm gonna get a treat if i do this it's same it's like this breakdown of basic human free thought you know you're so entwined into this 23 hours a day in complete isolation that you're willing to do pretty much whatever you can to get out of that so you're willing to kind of push aside your own morals and your own moral compass to Get some relief. I mean, it's incredibly admirable that he held on to his like politics, right? Like, it's it's, it's unbelievable, or like it's so impressive. Yeah, I guess it, another thing that maybe generalizes to other kinds of like uh, psychiatric stuff is like there's been uh, a lot of um, sort of descendants of CBT, descendants of cognitive behavioral therapy that have been developed. So broadly, like cognitive scientifically informed talk therapies that are more explicitly value oriented, more explicitly designed to like thinking about how you can construct a life worth living for yourself. And that that might work better than just like avoiding any thought that makes you feel like negative in an unhelpful way. Instead to like think positively about like how you can construct something positive, which is, a, I mean, it's also a different focus to like psychoanalytic psychotherapy right which is about like digging for the source of the trauma it's much more forward-looking than that um and stuff like that seems to have at least at this stage seems to have a lot of promise and potentially more promise and then i i don't know there's just to throw in another philosopher whose work people should check out there's a woman called uh, sahanika ratmayaka 
who was at least might still be at the University of Cambridge, who has done some really interesting stuff on the sort of some of the assumptions of mindfulness and CBT, especially as they relate to, to values and agency and so on. And it's really, really interesting work. But is it just like, because I, I mean, I totally understand, you know, trying to think positive in negative situations, but at like what point, like, is it just impossible to have these positive thoughts when you're continually in these negative situations? You know, yeah, it's completely so amazing that someone like Robert King can say 29 years later, he can keep his frame of mind and understand that there's something greater waiting for him on the other side of that steel door that he can remain somewhat lucid in how he understands his day-to-day life. But man, that has to be freaking tough to stay and try and stay positive when everything seems so negative. I don't know if it is about staying positive exactly. I think it's about trying to get to something positive mm, that's a good point so i think if anything it's it's like one of the one of the sort of the criticisms of cbt which is probably unfair but at least it's definitely unfair with respect to like some practitioners practice but it might be fair with respect to a lot of the theory it is about focusing on you know feeling positive about like your current environment rather than building a better one like a classic example would be like uh, there was this thing that was circulating on Twitter, a genuine example from a CBT textbook. Like your boss shouts at you, you get angry, you feel bad. Your boss shouts at you, you think, oh, maybe I was just having a bad day. Maybe they're just having a bad day. You don't feel bad. And that was like an example of like how to deal with stuff positively. And it, you quit your job if your boss is a dick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, there's this understanding that if you're in a bad situation, the ultimate goal... and once again, like when you're in that situation, it's a lot harder to look outside of that situation, have retrospection to say, I need to get out of the situation or I need to change the situation. So if I'm in a situation where, say, my boss is yelling at me, I'm more likely to say, all right, what can I do to make sure he doesn't yell at me rather than how do I change the situation? So I'm you know, never getting yelled at. I mean, I've never been in an abusive relationship or anything of that nature, but you know, at least talking to individuals who have, it's very tough to get out of that mindset of pleasing your abuser. Yeah, I think I think that's that's true. That's definitely something like a lot of people report. And again, I think it's similar in a way to the solitary confinement case that relies on like the social feedback is skewed such that it eats away at your self sense of self. There's a reason that one of the key things that's involved in like abuse is that they try and cut away other people's social contacts. It gives them the power to stop people valuing themselves because other people aren't there to like big the person up, you know, make them feel better, remind them what they like about themselves, what what is eminently likable about them. If the abuser can like cut them off from the world and take sort of full control of their their social environment by making themselves this person's entire social environment. You know, you get to a point where a prisoner or an individual in that situation feels like they deserve it. They deserve to be in there. And so I'm going to listen to what my captor or prison guard, whatever, but what my prison guard captor says is what I should be doing because, yeah, I'm not being built back up by someone else that's saying, no, this is what happened to you is wrong. But having, you know, that foresight of Robert King to say, when I get out of here, I can say, this was not right. And I want to help other people definitely can help in that journey. I don't, I feel like maybe there's a slightly different emphasis I would put on it personally. I don't know if okay. this is this is right. I don't know if it's that people feel that they're worthless, but that people start to people require a certain level of positive social feedback. And if they're completely deprived of that, then 
they'll take it where they can get it. So mm. they might be like much more compliant with their guard because their guard is the one person who they could potentially have a vaguely positive interaction with. If they're if when they're nice to their guard, their guard like has like a two minute chat with them about the weather. Yeah. So okay. if that's your only social interaction, that becomes potentially incredibly valuable to you in a way that in normal circumstances, if you had other forms of social interaction, you'd be telling your guard to fuck off, basically. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, that definitely makes sense. I'm glad you kind of brought that back to that emphasis because yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying with that, and I do kind of want to get to this idea of just like punishment and control and punishing wrongdoers. And like, why do you personally believe we're, we're doing this? And like, what's happening within ourselves that we're okay with this happening? And I, I hit on, you know, the UK a little bit, but like in the US, we're 4.25% of the population, the world's population, but we account for almost a quarter of the world's prison population, you know, half the individuals in U.S. prisons are there for nonviolent offenses. And so it just feels like we want to punish these people. And <laughs> back to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, it's like, what is it about humans that we're okay letting this happen up to a certain point? Well, I don't want to brag, but this gets this gets too close to my, my single proudest fact about myself and for me not to. So I once got... Uh, I got sort of stabbed in the chin and neck. Oh, shit. Okay. The policewoman completely ignored me, but I was really keen not to press charges on the basis of not believing in the prison system. And she was like, so I'm going to write down that you are pressing charges. And I was like, no, it won't It won't help anything. It'll just make it all worse. And she was like, uh-huh. I'm going to write down that you are pressing charges. <laughs> we, had a, we had a long time of that in the hospital. But yeah, in terms of how people... Uh, I mean, I think it's just one of those things, right, where like, the people for whom it's like salient in their lives are not the people with the power to fix it. And the people with the power to fix it, it's not salient in their lives. So it's very easy for it to just not get fixed. Kind of fall through the cracks. Yeah, as is, as is so often the case, right? Like it's, I mean, in, in the US especially, there's a big like economic aspect to the whole thing, right? Like, um, I'm, I mean, on both sides of the aisle too, like a lot of people think it's just Republicans throwing people in jail, but it's Republicans and Democrats that both benefit from having more people in jail yeah absolutely like uh, it was it was very much uh, setting up things that the way that they were especially in the like late 20th century was like absolutely a bipartisan effort it's fair to say well what got clinton elected right um <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. but no yeah i think humans at least from what i understand about humans it's it seems like humans like control and, you know, they like to be in control of their own life. And there are certain individuals in our society that like to be control, in control of other people's lives. Punishment and negative reinforcements tend to be a lot easier than positive reinforcements. You know, even, you know, I used to train dogs. And a lot of the time, a lot of people, when they're training their dogs, it tends to be a negative reinforcement. You know, the spray bottle, the, the clicker, the, I mean, obviously never get into the abuse of an animal, but... You know, a lot of studies have found that positive reinforcement with dogs and, you know, treats and, you know, changing the tone of your voice can have a lot or can have a much broader impact on that dog's mental health throughout their life. So instead of being fearful of going to pee on the carpet, they understand that I can have a better time and I enjoy it better going pee outside. Mm. I think humans are still trying to wrap their head around. I mean, we understand that obviously punishing someone for doing something that they could consider wrong is bad, but we still do it. And I think that is also a generational thing. You know, I know how different parents have raised their kids. And I know 
people in our generations are getting better at saying, I'm not going to spank my kid. I'm going to teach them a different way about how not to do that rather than using this physical aspect or this mental aspect to control them. Yeah. I don't know. I think as well, like uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, sort of small C conservatism. People can't imagine and don't care to imagine a better way. Mm-hmm. It's similar to like, uh, it happens as well around like involuntary confinement of people with like serious psychiatric disorders, where it's just easier to lock them up, like re- rehabilita- rehabilitative programs, like fixing social problems, like fixing problems like in and around communities, like redistribution of wealth, like any, like the kinds of helping like with a quality of opportunity, all of the things that like would actually like do by far the most to make things safer for everyone they're they're slow and they're different and it's much easier just to sort of carry on rather than think about like the really difficult thing i mean i'm like one thing i'm not saying of course is that what we currently have works in any sense so it's not that like people think it would work worse but it would mean it would at least require facing like the scale of the problem to try and change it whereas if you just carry on as they are then you like you you've not done anything have you you've just not done anything. <laughs> well, yeah, like as you were saying earlier, when talking about like more of a global view, it's like if it's not directly affecting me, why do I want to put the energy into it? Like someone like Robert King, like solitary confinement directly impacted his life, so he has more skin in the game. Whereas someone like myself, you know, I've never been in jail, or I guess I know family and friends who have been in jail, but solitary confinement is going to impact me less. So I'm less likely to spend my energy and my time and you know, because time is a very precious resource. But I'm less willing to send that or spend that time and energy on this because there's something else that I'm more focused on spending that time and energy on. And I'm fine with this, because I want to change this, or I'm not fine with it. But you know, I'm willing to as as we kind of said, let it slip through cracks for right now. It's a really difficult one, right? Because Ultimately, like the very act of like working out where to spend your energy is a use of energy and probably not the best use of energy. Yeah. <laughs> you get into true, this thing which true. is called the frame problem in cognitive science, which is it was like a, it's open ended how much like information you need to gather before action. And so <laughs> to some extent, you do just kind of have to start doing something. And that, do, but that does produce these kinds of biases. I think basically. In as much as there's like an individual level solution, which I really don't think that there really is, but in as much as there is one, it's to like really actually try and empathize with people who it does affect. <laughs> read their read their stories, like read their you know autobiographies and stuff. Like that's always seemed really helpful to me. I mean, like one of the things that got me really interested in um, like autism, like I was talking about earlier, was like autobiographical work. I mean. At least, like when it comes to sort of yeah, severe like very severe cases of autism. I don't know anyone with very severe cases of autism, or not well, um, and not not when I got interested in the first place. But like you can still find a way to extend empathy. It's a little bit less blinkered and short sighted, but like ultimately, you're never going to do things perfectly rationally. It relies on like a distributed effort. I think as well, it's easy to overstate because like most people don't care or do much about anything, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not most people, but yeah, there is a good, good, a lot of people oh, that I, tend I'd to just, most. you think so? I, but no, I, yeah, yeah. I definitely think as a creative and as someone with a platform, you know, being able to tell other stories and talk about people like Robert King and have people be aware of the world being bigger than just themselves. You know, like you don't need to, after listening to this episode, you don't need to go out and 
do protests for solitary confinement, but at least just being aware of what's happening is so important to having a better world and to just creating a better society. Because if you're just having this aspect of, I know what's happening out there, but I don't want to get into it because it's just too much energy. I think that's lazy. I think that's lazy. And that is a, you know, a negative to you adding something to this world. Like I said, you don't have to go out and protest, but just be aware of what the frick is happening. It's a difficult one, right? Because there's on the one hand with it, when it comes to these sort of like, you know, moral exhortations, you can't be too perfectionist or it alienates people. But then on the other hand, like, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we should all be doing more, you know, maybe we should all be doing way more. I say as long as, as long as you're putting a little toe in, that's all you have to do. Just put a little toe in the water. You don't have to jump in feet first off the diving board from 30 feet. Um, I don't know what that is in meters, but just just put the toe in. Just dip the toe in. That's all you got to do. Well, to, to stay being bad cop, maybe, <laughs> but maybe you should think about why you don't want to dive in, you know? Maybe maybe mm. think about like that, what it is. I agree with that. I agree with that. The bad cop was a good, a good stare, thing. Stare there. into the depths of your soul and see if you think. There's anything of value there. You know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, Joe, well, I got to cut this off. Otherwise, we're going to be here for three hours. Uh, Joe, thank you for taking the time. I'm definitely going to have you back for many more conversations. Uh, but thank you for taking the time, your energy, to share your perspective on some of these strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to read more publications written by Joe or follow along as he finally tries to get a letter to the editor style paper accepted, you can do so by following him on Twitter at Joseph. F. Goff, once again, at Joseph F. Goff, or peruse over to his website, www.joefgoff.com. And be welcomed by a great photo. I was going to ask you where you got that jacket, but a great photo of Joe with an even greater coat. <laughs> and, as, and of course, as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So, Joe, just to add, end this episode on a little, just a little funner, lighter topic, <laughs> which animal, if armed with human intelligence, do you believe we would need to fear the most? Ooh, I'd be tempted to say octopuses, but they're, they're stuck in the water and they can't, you know, they <laughs> I think they can only come out on land for like 30 to 60 minutes as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Wimps. <laughs> have to get like a little bit back. <laughs> Evolve um, a little more. Come on. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, if there were like there were super intelligent hippos, I think we'd be pretty screwed. Oh yeah, hippos are so freaking dangerous. Yeah, right. My answer is always, and it's the same answer. If humans just disappeared, what would take over is ants. Ooh, I think I like ants it. could easily take over the world if humans weren't there. I can't remember how big it was, but everyone should Google the biggest ant colony in the world because it's like continent size. Insane. It's madness. In 2009, researchers concluded that the largest ant colonies in Japan, California, Europe, and Argentina, over 4,000 miles of colonies and billions upon billions of ants, were in fact a part of a single global mega colony, which represents the most populous recorded animal society on Earth besides us, humans. And I mean, talk about perfection. Ants have perfected communism. <laughs> so give them human intelligence, boom, taking over the world. Not that communism is, I didn't want to say communism is good. Aspects of communism are good, the same as aspects of socialism, capitalism, all of these things. But ants, I always say ants. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. Ants and hippos. Ants and hippos going at it, mano a mano. 
who's going to win? Uh, so, all right, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. The only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Joe, where we take these strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. So Joe, we are to my favorite part of the episode. You've listened to a few episodes, so you know what's happening right now. Joe, I'm going to give the floor over to you to close out the show however you see fit. Whatever you think needs to be said, whatever you think needs to be sung, whatever. I grant you Water Cooler Talk podcast. I uh, I was waiting for sort of divine inspiration to hit me for this part, and I can assure everyone <laughs> listening that it, it has not. So uh... <laughs> Don't say that. The other guests are going to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's been a delight to talk to you all, but I would, uh, yeah, I'd encourage you to, uh, to think carefully about all of the issues we've talked about. Think carefully about, you know, the word mind, maybe, maybe even, you know, share it with your friends. If, you know, you think there's some criticisms that might be worth sharing, but, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for listening. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. I think you found it a little bit there at the end. Not everything we say on the show needs to change the world. It just needs to just needs to hit one person just right. But uh, Joe, absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Like I said, I look forward to many conversations in the future. Maybe you know. Maybe you even hosting the show one of these times. I don't want to put that much pressure on you, but uh, I look forward to many more conversations in the future. I look forward to how people respond to this conversation. It was uh, super fun and entertaining. I have a good time just always thinking about these ideas and how our brain works and how our mind works. And our, our what? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had to get Joe back on that one. Um, but no, I appreciate you being on the show today. And listeners, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs> <laughs>